This is the Great Adaptations Podcast from the Glacier Trust. Hello, I'm Morgan Phillips, UK Co-Director of the Glacier Trust, and your host for the Great Adaptations Podcast. Glacier Trust enables climate change adaptation in the remote mountain villages of Nepal. To do this, we work with fantastic NGO partners on projects that prevent landslides, secure water supplies, tackle insect pest infestations, and support farmers to transition to forms of agriculture that are not only more resilient to the growing impacts of climate change, but also part of a wider process of societal transformation that aims to strengthen democracy, improve health and education, and fight for racial, gender and economic equality. Our project work follows strong ecological and social justice principles and doesn't separate adaptation off from the pressing need to regenerate nature, mitigate climate change and transition the world away from an economic system that is failing Nepal and failing the world. In 2020, lockdown and unable to visit Nepal, I wrote a short book called Great Adaptations in the Shadow of a Climate Crisis. It was published in September 2021 by Arcbound and is available to buy via the Glacier Trust website, but you can also find it on all the good book selling websites. This podcast series accompanies the book and features interviews with scientists, politicians, academics, and campaigners. The aim of the book, the podcast, and the wider Great Adaptations project is simple. We want to get more people talking and thinking about adaptation. Adaptation is already happening and we can only expect to see more of it and more of its evil twin, maladaptation. We want to shine a light on the great and not so great adaptations so that when people start designing and implementing their adaptation strategies, they look to adapt in ways that are socially just, compatible with mitigation efforts and part of a wider transformative process. The adaptations to climate change that are already happening need to be scrutinized and celebrated in equal measure. Great Adaptations does that, but conversations about adaptation can't exist in a vacuum. Context is everything. So welcome to episode one of the Great Adaptations podcast. This is an interview with Asad Rahman, an activist and campaigner who is fast becoming one of the most recognisable voices in the climate justice movement. Asad is executive director of War on Want, who work in the UK with partners around the world to fight poverty and defend human rights as part of the movement for global justice. Before that, he was head of international climate at Friends of the Earth, and he has served on the boards of Amnesty International UK, Friends of the Earth International, Global Justice Now, and New and Monitoring Project. Assad was right at the heart of COP26 as part of the COP26 coalition, who organised a global day of climate action that drew huge numbers to Glasgow, with millions more participating at the 200 events that happened right across the world on that middle Saturday. He also ventured into the belly of the COP26 Blue Zone to give a passionate, heartfelt speech to delegates and to the millions of us who were following online. Asad and I spoke via Zoom in August 2021. We talked about his journey into climate change, the historic reluctance of the environmental movement to frame the climate crisis as a crisis of capitalism, the hesitancy that exists in some quarters to really spell out what justice means, the trouble we get into when we silo climate change off into camps like mitigation and adaptation, and the tensions that exist between global north countries who view the UNFCCC process as being about net zero goals versus the global south who are asking for compensation for losses and damage and funding for adaptation. I'll be back at the end to reflect briefly on the conversation and to tell you a bit more about the next episode, but for now... Here's Asad Rahman on the Great Adaptations podcast. So Asad, brilliant to meet you. Thanks so much um, for joining me and um, and being on this Great Adaptations podcast. It's um it's really brilliant to have your have your support and to and to talk to you and to meet you for the first time. I've heard you speak um, a couple of times at events and always been really inspired by by your message and, and the passion and everything in which you deliver it. It's really really fantastic. Very um, kind of you. Very, really... And a pleasure to join you as well. Ah, great. Um, so I, um, I really wanted just to start off really just talking about um, your kind of journey, I guess, into the climate change world and how you, how you sort of 
first became interested in it as a topic and and why you did and sort of what's what set the alarm bells ringing for you i know you used to work for friends of the earth but i'm guessing it started before that even bells ringing for you, i guess yeah so i i i always used to say um i'm not a environmentalist um my route to climate and climate justice came not through the traditional sort of environmental lens uh as somebody who you know i was born in pakistan um i grew up here in the uk um in a small northern town a time of you know intense racial violence and and racism and and you know that shaped my outlook and 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 got me involved in politics uh, originally a lot around the fight for racial justice both here in the uk but also globally understanding that what was happening to me in my experiences as a community of, in the 70s and 80s you know was uh, uh was the experience that i could see was happening to people in south africa or in palestine or in latin america it was it was understanding that actually this issue around racial injustice wasn't within the confines of any local area or even the nation state it was a global issue and so i've always been i suppose internationalist in 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 fighting where i am but also always recognizing the importance of uh, as a diaspora with the coming from countries of origin shaped by uh, an understanding that politics of anti-colonialism and, and anti-imperialism of of what that you know where my sort of moral and political anchor sat um and so for a great number of years i was very very involved in like particularly black led uh, community struggles around racist violence, police deaths, etc. But throughout that, also understood as as somebody who came from a working class community living in poverty, that th- this was not an issue just about race. It was also an issue about class, and you know was very involved in progressive movements and supporting the miners' strike, involved involved in what I would call general left politics, understanding that you know as a community. Um, our experiences as a, as a as a black community and black politically meaning all people of yeah. color um was as much rooted in in class and that we needed class solidarity and 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 being in also inspired by the transformations that happened through those moments of of interaction so um you know within i suppose the black community of the history of black struggle there are pivotal moments about what black organization and self-organization meant one was grunwick trying to uh, grunwick strike and uh, this strike you know was largely uh, asian women first generation migrants etc but there's a very pivotal moment where you know thousands of miners from yorkshire come down and to the picket line and support and it transforms the way that you know migrant workers and black workers were seen within the labor movement that this we were not a problem within the labor movement being uh, that we were undercutting wages etc but that there could be a solidarity that lifted all of these communities forward and and then in 1984 yeah. as i was growing up in the during the miners strike and in, in you know i come from yeah. lancashire it was a very big issue to see also how that memory lives on within communities that, you know, within the Asian community, there was an immense support, both from a class perspective. These are working class people. We understand what that means to them, uh, both the experience of policing and seeing that and relating that back to, you know, of course, the uprisings that happened in 81 and 84, but also that people understood solidarity and said, ah, but they supported us and we need to support them. And that really, yeah. that shaped began my understanding that actually race and class were not just local national but they were global issues and it got me into the fight for economic justice of course and and at a, at both in at a global level and i was very involved in the anti-globalization movement in the iterations of of our movements trying to pr- produce alternatives the social forum process all the you know and the g7 pro g8 protests at the time the 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 you know it was a heady moment where you saw this alliance being built of the global south and the global north of trade unions and social movements and progressives 
trying to understand that what this moment of multiple crisis that we were fighting and what the fights were that they were structural that there was a reason why when i went back to pakistan there's a reason why you know four out of ten people are in multi multiple di multiple dimensional poverty there's a reason this is poverty is not natural this is a construct that has been determined and and the extremes of wealth and inequality and having f spent so many years working on economic justice issues and and then r r r racial justice issues and and wider political justice issues i first suddenly became aware of climate yeah. and it, and i was really i suppose perplexed about the uh, the uh, about the climate movement um I, I, you know, I moved and lived in East London and uh, this was a, an area where there was intense black self-organising around racial violence and policing. I mean, huge issues. And yet a mile down the road were environmental protesters at the M11 protest and yeah. they had zero connection with our communities mm. no attempt to try and make common cause or to experience in fact we were passive bystanders in that when reclaim the streets happened it was, it was i was always fascinated that i would go along to reclaim the streets protests and find myself standing and looking and thinking the middle of the road is overwhelmingly white and everybody who's yeah. a bystander is overwhelmingly black and the and the people who are overwhelmingly black live in this community and feel that this struggle is something that they're passive observers to and not active and they don't have agency within. And so I was always struck at how, how white the environment movement was mm -hmm. and, and, and the frames that it was using. So when I first started to then delve a little bit deeper into this story and I was going, it's all about white polar bears on icebergs. And it's, and when I see people who look like me, they're always usually you know up to their neck in water or drowning or you know they're they're like victims yeah. and and the more i began to understand it the more also movements that i was connected to with at a global level were all saying everything we're fighting for is within this climate narrative and everything we fight for and we're winning is that we're going to lose because of this climate crisis yet there's not that intersectional understanding about climate why is it that the north only talks about climate in this technical sense it doesn't talk about it as a political issue it doesn't talk about powerful vested interests doesn't bring the economic dimension doesn't bring justice into it um and so my so when i first i have to say when i first had my main interaction and it was then with friends of the earth who were who were probably the best out of all of the mainstream environmental organizations in these social movement spaces they say oh you, you don't know we're better than that we're, we're we are interested in environmental justice we are interested in in the climate justice arena and i and i thought oh well all right let me come along and i'll try and i'll be involved with you and it'll be and i have to say i thought it would be a temporary step and i would just find out a little bit more find probably that this wasn't the right home for me in what i was wanted to be politically active and i would move and find another space and and um but actually um through friends of the earth particularly friends of the earth international because it had so many grassroots organizations many of the movements i was working with were all either connected and they and they were all there and all saying the analysis that i i was looking at that you know um that the climate crisis was fundamentally an issue of economic racial and social injustice that it was structural that the inequities in the climate crisis would, would mean that the global south was going to be sacrificed he understood it within using my lens the lens of, that, of racial justice of of how and why so baked into our societies this is this idea that you know lives of people in the global south are simply expendable or um etc so that's how i first began and came into what I, the climate justice part of the movement and found a natural home for myself it, that i that the approach i'd always brought to global issues was intersectional and here in climate justice was the most intersectional issue of its time this was you couldn't separate any anything that you could think about was all related to climate it was trade taxation role of multinationals structural power role of the global north to the global south you know everything was up was was a play and it was very very fluid and i also have to say also from a political angle um movements in the global south really said 
these when we have interactions with the global north movements they're also white you know there's nobody of person of color there's nobody that we can ally with you need to get more involved with them we need we need our voices in these movements in the global north and so go on stay there and do and do this job so that's a little bit i was like a little pull for myself but also a little push from movement saying we, you know we need we, we can't allow this movement to continue in the way that it is and 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 being shaped by this particular narrative discourse with these set of political demands and then whatever for about 10 15 years i ended up sort of being a very central figure in in climate justice politics both in the UNFCCC and outside in understanding the importance of building power and why we need to build power both inside the the negotiations but also importantly outside and who hold held that power because that was defining you know those moments and of course there were big crunch moments in Copenhagen etc where that was very very clear the the very very different lens in which the mainstream global north environment movements would look at an issue and 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 climate justice groups and best expressed between the fight between from climate justice groups of the keep temperatures well below one degree because we're already losing our lives we're already we're already having to adapt we're already facing climate impacts and the global north saying two degrees was a safe mm. target and the european mm. union and ngos yeah i think you've already it's is it something which I've really come to understand? I'm definitely, my self-awareness tells me, you know, I'm very much from that kind of middle-class white environmental movement. And that's kind of how I have been, I guess, it's the context in which I've learned about it and the context in which I've worked in it, to, especially earlier in my career, which is why it's been, for me, so, so great to move into working, you know, with communities in Nepal who are directly impacted by climate change. And, and actually it was it was kind of, that frustration I think which I didn't probably understand properly at the time but it was kind of bubbling away underneath when I was kind of working the environmental movement and and thinking well it's all very well talking about reducing emissions and all these things but there's people right now who are really suffering because of what is happening and why aren't we why aren't we talking to them and and working with them you know it seems it seemed crazy to me which is what which is why I'd kind of had that bit of shift career-wise and I think something which um and the common cause that you talk about is something which was really um, always there in the background for me, like common cause, the movement which came out of WWF, which I'm sure you're um, aware of with Tom Crompton and so on. Um, that really sort of helped me to understand it systemically and how these, you know, it's, there's no point solving climate change within a, within a global structure, which is creating all sorts of other problems. You know, climate change is a probably the biggest symptom of a failing global economic system and political system and and so tackling it but not tackling that system just seems um i don't know quite quite selfish in some ways sometimes i think about it in that way so it's um it's kind of it's kind of protecting what i have and without actually thinking well we need to break down some bigger things here we need to have deeper conversations um and um, and also failed strategy i mean it was and also i mean for even from the sort of uh, that perspective, it it was it was it was always bound to fail. And I think where we are now, if we look back, we can say there were fundamental mistakes. Yes, about the framing. Yes, about political understanding. Yes, about the the theory of change. You know, I think so much of mainstream environmentalism had tried to take climate out of all those broad questions of politics and economy and think that, you know, um, probably similarly to the, the and, and thought that the campaigns around the ozone layer could be replicated on climate. Mm. That once you yeah. explained to decision makers and people in power, this impending crisis produced the reports, they would act rationally and would take these decisions and this issue would be resolved without actually understanding that our, our economic system is predicated on a system of extraction which directly is driving this the climate crisis so what you're saying when you say tackle the climate crisis fundamentally means you have to alter the economic model that we have and they never understood that they thought you could keep the model and still tackle climate change and i think we wasted 
potentially decades on that and we didn't build the movements and the language we used around climate which was you know but it would be solved by technical people and it was all parts per million and it was temperature rises and not you know i've not thought about the importance of building social license on tackling the climate crisis by thinking about how do we reframe like the common cause you talk about you know warm homes and clean air and you talk about climate jobs and all of those things that allowed you to find threads which connected to a bigger story and tell that big story and build support for that big story to be able to build support for the transition. I think, you know, one of the problems also of the climate movement was it couldn't describe the world that it wanted that would follow Mm -hmm. if we solved the climate crisis. And you're never going to build support for a transformation unless you can describe the world that you want to create. And that hesitancy of describing it um, I think set us back for a very long time and it's very much like, you know, the climate justice, you know, the climate justice sort of mantra, system change, not climate change, you know, I think encapsulated that, but also had huge weaknesses, you know, and I think we have to be honest that too much of the climate justice movement in the global north were then thought that that was the end. As long as we said system change, not climate change, without then saying, so how do we deliver system change? What are the demands that we need within these system change? What what are the yeah. transitional demands and what are the tr- the huge transitions? And I think we're only beginning to see that conversation happening now with, you know, just transition conversations, Green New Deals and all of these different variations yeah. that are and uh, Yeah, and what is the new system that we move to, isn't it? And the th- you've, um, you've been talking quite a lot in the past tense saying the climate movement was... Um, in this space do you think it has changed and do you think where do you think the climate movement is now I mean you've been a prominent voice in in sort of I mean I think I think some you know I think some of the people who are resistant to talking about the the greater structural problems in the system change it's not not necessarily that they don't understand that that needs to happen but they don't want to admit that that needs to happen because of because of their vested interests and what they stand to lose um but do you think it is do you think there has been a shift and that the climate, where's, I mean, you talked about where the climate movement was, where do you think it is now in terms of understanding these intersectionalities and willingness to, yeah, to talk about transformation in a real way? So I, I, I always used to say, you know, the biggest uh, thing in the environmental, particularly in the NGO sector was, you know, don't talk about the, 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 the 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 word C right you talked about it inside internally so internally if you looked at everybody's sort of you know uh, brainstorming or their planning it all talked about yeah we've got a crisis of capitalism or our economic system but that was never then said publicly in any external communications or to any stakeholders or to decision makers it was all the big secret the secret was we knew that it was a structural issue but we don't tell anybody because that's not pragmatic i think where we are now and and it's fascinating because i still remember a fight a massive fight within the NGO movement, even here in the UK, whatever, uh, over 10 years ago, um, over the word justice, whether you should, you could include the word justice centrally in a broad coalition of climate and environmental organisations. And, and big organisations said, no, we don't use the word justice. It's not acceptable. It's not within the language we use about climate change. We're in climate change. We're act on climate change, blah, blah, blah. Justice is just, people don't understand what justice means, etc. I think now, you know, the mantra of everybody is, of course, everybody says the least responsible are the ones being most impacted, the most responsible are the least impacted. It's accepted. Everybody accepts that there's inequality in terms of emissions. Everybody accepts that there is a, a deeper question about inequality that sits within the within the climate crisis. Everybody even accepts that the need for urgency. Where there's still hesitancy, and the people now, you know, you have world leaders talk about climate justice you have corporations using the word climate justice you have every ngo now on the top of its placard says we stand for climate justice what where the challenge is is that that's not still not translating into them actually telling the truth about the scale the urgency and the kind of transition that's needed there's still a hesitancy so we we now see you know i suppose more there's there's more language about 
the need for urgency, but never spelling out what urgency would mean. So classic example here in the UK. So if everybody did their fair share of emission reduction to meet their 1.5 target, we'd be saying the UK needs to be at minus 200% by 2030. We not only have to reduce its emissions to decarbonise fully by 2030, it would need to also pay its debt just on mitigation of at least a trillion. How many NGOs are willing to say that and say it will be laughed out the door? We can't say that. So they'll say we need ambitious, strong targets in 2030. We need to increase our climate finance pledges without saying what does that actually mean? Is it 100 billion and one dollar or is it a thousand dollars? Or I mean, you know, you're not spelling it out. And and I think there's still there's a they're on a journey, but they are clearly not where we want them to be. So that's I would say it's a it's a it's a it's a fascinating moment because to some extent the mainstream climate movement has been uh, rocked to its core by new movements the youth climate strikers extinction rebellion more vociferous climate justice groups in the global south and so this uh and you can't remove that from the broader conversations about black lives matter etc so suddenly ngos are becoming much more sensitive uh to uh, to not being called out on these issues um yeah. uh, where i where i still remember you know i i was um you know after copenhagen you know i had a government minister ring my director and say when I was at Fred and say, you know, can you tell your climate Taliban and, and keep him quiet? He's causing problems. Right. Uh, and that was just acceptable. Uh, I was in meetings of UK NGOs where, you know, I can't tell the difference between who's an NGO and who's the government. And when I critiqued the government, and I would have other NGOs apologise to the UK government saying, I'm sorry that the blah, 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 blah. And I would have say, you don't apologise for me. I'm not accountable to you. I'm accountable to our movements and people in the global south. Your accountability is, is the government going to be, you know, how dare you speak to me like that? And I said, well, I, I'm here to say, actually, that's totally inadequate. I'm, I'm here to say, actually, the UK's role is you claim to be climate champion, you know, cli you, uh, you recognise climate, but you're acting in, you know, the same as a climate denialist. And, um, you know, so I, and I know now, if I sat in those rooms, nobody would feel like they could apologise on my behalf Right. Ten years ago, they were apologising on my behalf. So I, I think there are big internal changes, pressures, uh, big changes narrative wise. Still a long way to go in terms of the actual policy intervention. So um, that is where the both, I think, in terms of NGOs, climate philanthropy, all of the elements of the big movers on climate, they haven't they've shifted the way they talk about climate change, they're not shifted what they're what they see as being the interventions that are needed. Which brings us very nicely onto adaptation, I think, because um it is I think I mean I agree with you and I've you know been in the environmental movement for ten years and what you describe I I can definitely relate to and I think the pressures and the expert I don't know, sometimes the perceptions of the expectations of audiences, the perceptions of the expectations of different funders and grant givers and corporate partnerships all factor into what NGO leaders feel they can and can't say and I think it's I think what has been great in the last few years like you say with with this kind of sudden you know shaking of of, of the movement is that people are, are are feeling more empowered to actually sort of stand up and say these things I've definitely noticed it in some of the conversations I've been having with with funders and, and so on about you know, we need to go further and, and quite often even within those funding organizations and corporations they they also face the same challenges it's, it's a naughty mess but yeah i think incrementally we're getting there we've had a had a good good up upsurge recently and hopefully it will keep going um so yeah in terms of kind of walking the talk i guess um that's the next stage isn't it and this is why I'm really interested to have the conversation around um adaptation and environmental organizations being willing even to speak about it let alone to start to think about whether they should be working with communities to enable them to to um, adapt to climate change as it hits um, and to adapt in 
ways which um, are equitable and have justice at the core and don't create more environmental problems you know it is to, to steer them away from cranking up the air conditioner during a heat wave and think about other ways they can adapt in in meaningful ways so um yeah i'd love to hear your sort of experience of having any conversations around adaptation um either in the past or, or more recently and and especially in the kind of environmental sector and how you feel about whether people you know why why it's why it's still not really talked about that much um yeah i mean it, 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 i mean it's always really interesting because i think in 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 climate justice movements particularly in the global south this siloing of approaches of there's mitigation and then there's adaptation doesn't really exist there are steps that you need to take to tackle the climate crisis one of which is also building the resilience of our communities because we're already feeling those impacts and that drives both how people look at what the transformation of like our food system is for example saying we need to be adapting our food system to be able to protect us from climate crisis and from inequality but also delivers on reducing our emissions but the pathway which we choose has got to be you know pro people because the without it you can simply look at it again and make same bring the same lens of making the same mistake that anything that reduces emission reductions is the right approach, um, and so mitigation becomes the way that you you accept and there and you're willing to accept all environmental injustices along the way because all that matters is the carbon output, right? And, and but once you start to look at it holistically and look at it from a a systems point of view or an earth systems point of view actually start saying actually the carbon is just one part of this story it's also you know how will people be fed who controls the food system how is it going to be shared equitably and it leads you to totally different pathways now one part of and i always used to be told you know we shouldn't be talking about adaptation because it's like a moral hazard right the more we talk about adaptation the more we weaken the argument for urgency uh in terms of emission reductions and i would you know i suppose my view was always that that we have to be when we understand the drive of the climate crisis and the scale and the urgency this approach of having silos it just doesn't work in the real world despite all the pronunciations about the climate emergency despite all of the reports the ipcc report on the 1.5 all of these things that you know climate justice movements have been saying for a very very long time saying you know breach the one degree we're talking about impacts that was going to create huge economic social uh, uh, costs for us that we'll start to see collapse of our food systems all of these things despite all of that we're still heading towards at least a three degree warming of the planet now there is a challenge because how far can you go to adapt right there's the adaptive capacity of our of our systems and our communities uh, also has a limit so how do you work on these both at the same time to make sure you've got urgency uh, and, and increasing ambition knowing of the trajectory we're going but also knowing that there's a human cost every single day by the climate crisis not something that's going to happen in our children's or our grandchildren's time this is already happening so uh, adaptation it might not be the most important thing if you're sitting in the global north but in the global south adaptation is the most important thing because that is the one that is playing out in people's lives and livelihoods now so marrying these two i think again was a very important thing from the climate justice movement that tried to move away from simply saying this is all about emission reduction to start talking about you know we need to transform our energy sector we need to transform our food systems we need to start thinking about you know how if we all know three things that you need to do about climate change are change the way we produce and consume energy change the way we produce consume food and stop deforestation right i mean that's simple i mean there are a million other things but three core things um and now how we do all of those can be either from a merry mitigation lens or it can be from a mitigation and adaptation lens. and climate justice groups already said 
we should be talking about how we change our food systems and bringing in what movements are already talking about because we're already talking about importance of agroecology and food sovereignty to cool the planet and and feed people we're already talking about people's own energy systems and caps on energy use to tackle energy poverty these are not new for us because they're they're fights we're already having because we don't have them so we're already calling for these changes and now they're just being labeled adaptation but to us they are part of the fight for a right to live with dignity or a dignified life they are core essential needs of people in our community so i i always thought that that was the right approach and i and and it's it's still interesting that the you know adaptation doesn't have the same importance i mean we saw that even in the recently with the run up towards the G7 right and mm-hmm. you look at the UK presidency and how the UK views the COP26 so we know that the priority goal for rich countries is a net zero 2050 goal that's their thing that they are pushing full front and and center and then you look at global south countries and they're saying hold on a minute, we need a finance goal and we need an adaptation goal, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we're not happy with the net zero 2050 because it's got no equity and it's breaches of 1.5 and all of those things we need urgency. But also we need these other two things. And that partly based on, and the more you speak with movements is, they just have no hope that the global north is going to take the action that is needed. So simply from a survival point of view, adaptation is increasingly becoming the language of movements because they're saying we just can't see the global north doing the emission reductions that are needed so we now have to safeguard ourselves and we have to talk more about adaptation recognizing the limits of adaptation which is why you know from a climate justice perspective we ended up with the third pillar loss and damage right which Mm -hmm. is accepting that that there is a limit to adaptation and after that there are simply losses and damages and in all of those the key question always comes back what are the systems that allow you to adapt what are the resources that you need to be able to adapt and how do you lift the stranglehold of the of the dominant system which is preventing you and acting as a barrier either for you as a community or for your country to enact the policies that its citizens actually want and you know that's why why it's part of a a much broader sort of narrative around um you know the transformation of 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 our global economy partly now brought more into sharp focus after covid where suddenly the things mm. that we'd been saying the climate justice movement had been saying for a long time now are much more widely accepted actually there's something very very broken with our global system actually there are we need to rethink how our economies work oh we have to think about you know, uh, if a one pandemic is, has been able to bring the world to its knees, cause hundreds of millions of losses of jobs, push people into destitution, all of these things, how that's a curtain raiser to the climate crisis, mm. right? So there are many lessons for us also to learn in in the opening of, of discourse, but also the response of the global north to these pandemics which unfortunately yeah. is not very hopeful. So one of the lessons being that, I mean, it's kind of the, the pandemic has almost been like a a super speeded up version of what, what climate change will do on it in terms of how the global north reacted to it, which was mostly poorly in, in terms of it protecting its own citizens, let alone anything else. And the way that it's coming out of the pandemic in a way in which it is trying to I don't know whether it's trying to, but it's 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 gaining a competitive advantage by being ahead on the vaccine program and 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 by denying you know patent access for being able to create generic vaccines in the global south is 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 preventing um, global south nations from vaccinating fast enough to be able to to keep up, I guess, as as the and so they'll fall behind again in the in the um, in the in the great sort of competition that exists um, I, I, absolutely i mean you know i i say to people constantly if you if you know if you want to look at the climate crisis look at covid mm-hmm. the government's told us no one is safe until everyone is safe 
they understood that this had direct impacts for the health and well-being of their own citizens and it had direct impacts on their or even on their economies yet when faced with the lowest hanging fruit so no transformation of your economy simply uh, in one sector to lift a patent on around one set of medical treatments and vaccines and still they couldn't do that knowing that there's a 50 million uh, death toll around the world knowing that for their own interests they need to vaccinate the world before then more mutations occur and still they went and said we're going to protect the interests of big pharmaceuticals it says a lot that even in the face of stark scientific and health evidence that governments are still making decisions which are their starting point is how to protect as you said their economic advantage protect their their multinationals and the and the power of their multinationals and the role of these multinationals in shaping government policies and interactions is immense and that's a disparity about power of citizens against vested interests within our within our political and economic system and it's it's it just shows the scale of what we face and that despite everything um you know over the last year we still you know the response 12 billion vaccines are need doses of vaccines are needed we'll give you 670 million in charitable donations that is exactly the same conversation in climate around the climate crisis right around how much climate finance is needed what technologies are needed if they're not going to lift it on covid how are they going to lift those technology waivers on the energy the the new the technologies that are needed for the for a really just transition what are they going to do about lifting and preventing the role of you know agribusiness in the global side you can already see that they are doubling down and saying you know we, we're fingers crossed and we're going to find some miraculous technical technological answer in the future which is going to somehow suck carbon out of the atmosphere and allow us to continue business as usual it is ultimately this build back better it's build back the same yeah it's true and um yeah i was thinking that about the, the technology thing is sort of you know we need they're going to build all these carbon capture storage things but also even just windmills solar panels and everything else that's necessary for the energy transition they can never really answer the question of well how does how does nepal buy enough solar panels to be able to be run off green energy they can't they can't buy enough ventilators to cope with covid and so it's it's kind of like we could create the technology and that's not really the issue. That's actually the simple part of it, isn't it? Is to is to invent it and, and manufacture it, but making it affordable for everybody in the world to be able to buy and getting it there. You know, when you when when whenever I do visit Nepal and visit sort of health centres and so on, and see how little equipment they've got and of you know X-ray machines, which have you know when were when were X-ray machines invented? And there's not they haven't for because of the global economic system. You know, towns and villages in Nepal can't afford to buy basic bits of kit like that to to sort of address really simple health issues. So, yeah, it's a big thorny one to get over. But I think the I want to go back to the point you made um, about because I think this is this is the lesson that's probably being learnt from the pandemic and the an accelerated lesson of you know the global north isn't going to come to the rescue, and so therefore, if we are headed to three degrees, then we better get on with adapting and it, that is that going to create i'm just wondering how that's going to play out over the next few decades in terms of the divisions that's going to cause um and whether also there's enough understanding or people are able to think critically and see through the kind of reassuring story about 1.5 that 1.5 is you know it's kind of talked about as yeah no worries we've got we've got 1.5 and two degrees at worst and you know, it's not going to get any worse than that. We have these, we have these targets, which means it's going to be okay. And if you do, if you think it's going to be okay, then the level of adaptation strategy put in place for 1.7 degrees is not going to be, um, it's not going to work at 2.3 degrees or 2.5 degrees, especially when you think about agriculture. So, yeah, just how do you think it's going to play out if if we do get to this point where, um. I guess people give up on the global north as coming to the rescue because they they see that they didn't over the pandemic. So how can we expect them to do it over over climate? I think when you look at the horizon, 
it's horribly depressing and scary of what it what what the world we're walking towards is going to look like um i mean i think we are literally at the crossroads and we know we say the alarm bells have been wrong and blah 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 we're at the edge of the precipice blah you know we've been tumbling down the question is is we how fast we tumble down now or whether at some point we manage to grasp a route and stop ourselves from tumbling any further and i you know for a long time i suppose that one part of the climate sort of movement discourse was well as impacts happen in the global north the realization of the need for transition will grow and we'll start to see this uh, starting to happen and you know, I mean, I, I I think the point you said about Nepal is just in thinking about, you know, the heat wave that in North America, right, that's leading to deaths, incredible. And then you look at this heat wave that's happening, you know, happening at the same time in Pakistan and deg- temperatures of 51, 53 degrees. Those people in Pakistan don't have the option of not working. They don't have the option of air conditioning. They don't have the option of, you know, let's go and sit by a, a water fountain or do all of these or black out our windows and all of those things. And you look at, you know, a million people on the brink of starvation in Madagascar and in Tigray and you say, how, what is the adaption, what is the adaptation that those communities can do now? Because everything that they're doing in their adaptive in, in adaptation is being undone by the violence of the climate crisis. So when one storm, you know, knocks, a, you know, can wipe out a decade of development gains in Dominica, for example, uh, and you're seeing super typhoons, super cyclones, more and more extreme weather, the capacity of the adaption becomes really, you know, I think will come a time when we'll be saying, Oh, it's no longer possible to adapt. So what do we? What are we going to do about the mass displacement of people? And uh, and 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 we're already seeing that Nepal is a classic example. Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, across the whole of the of of Asia, we're starting to see that question of what's going to happen about internal and external displacement of people. I think, the, I think at the moment we there's a says that in Bangladesh, so you know something like, you know, Dhaka absorbs. Uh, a few hundred thousand people each and every year because of climate displacement. Um, now, yeah. you know, what happens when, as we saw with COVID, when its main source of income for Bangladesh, which was the garment sector, which is hugely carbon intensive, environmentally unjust, destructive economically for the people, actually shut down. It yeah. just left people in total destitution because there was no no whether it's through the brands or we're from governments in the global north this question of our responsibility of sharing of resources and technology and that's where i think the adaptation conversation uh, has got a next step to go which is we're only possibly to we're all, it's only possible for us to adapt if there are some core principles like energy has to be a public good food has to be a public good where all of the resources are shared equitably. We have access to be able to 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 the technologies, but also, you know, that we don't see an unequal transition. So, look, look, looking at the 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 policy, for example, of the UK, the European Union, the the US, so much of it is, of course, around, you know, we'll transition our economies. We're going to we're going to build resilience into our economies. We're going to adapt where we can in terms of the climate impacts. We're going to throw our resources in terms of that. You forget the environmental cost of the material extraction from the global south. But again, those will be limited to us. And the global south is going to have to come and negotiate with us for some part of that. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll help some of the least poorest maybe we won't maybe if you're an ally of ours you'll get a little bit and maybe you <laughs> won't and and you know i mean all the fault lines of 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 this unequal world you know just get exposed within 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 that within that conversation so i i mean it's adaptation you know it, i 
personally, you know, within the UNFCCC language of mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage, I think that's absolutely, we. those are policy interventions and structural things. I think for outside of that policy space, we, the importance is not to separate mitigation and adaptation. It's really, it's it's to talk about them in a common way that says tackling the climate crisis means solving the energy system, make, means making energy a public good, similarly with food, so that we begin to build in the ad- adaptation into our mitigation. I think this is the only way. Otherwise, by the time we get to adaptation, it'll be too late to adapt. Yeah, definitely. And it needs to be part of a, I mean, this is why we, I've finished up in the in the book I've written about the, the kind of transformative adaptation movement and you know positioning adaptation within a within a broader aim to to transform you know, energy systems, food systems, but also democratic systems, social systems, and and so that we can um, hopefully start to see kind of as as the economic system, the global economic system, which is quite homogenous and quite sort of you know Western civilization as we kind of talk talk about it is that as that starts to kind of fall apart a bit and um it it's likely well not who god i can't predict these things but it's it's possible that we'll have um a successor civilizations plural popping up around the world which are more localized which which are kind of um, not kind of reliant on globalization anymore and becoming more localized and more resilient and that we might see this start to happen and I kind of see it a little bit in Nepal in the mountains in the way that um, like you said earlier that the adaptation is really just part of a, a, a shift towards agroecology and a shift towards more democracy and gender equality and so on in those communities and, and an attempt to try and um, you know get more of the value from the products that they grow so they so they're growing coffee and but trying not to sell just green bean coffee but actually try to sell roasted coffee so they can actually so the value they get the value not cost of coffee down the road <laughs> well in on the other side of the world gets the money those sorts of transitions and transformations of what's happening is kind of what gives me some hope of what will happen and i guess we just have to hope that it those transitions can start to happen before there's serious collapse of of economies which will which will start in the global south and that they can transition away from a kind of um really unequal dependencies that they have on um with with the global north um yeah, yeah. and 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 you know and then the court so the, there's no i think with adaptation I, actually both with adaptation and mitigation it's not that we don't have the solutions they're at, they're there. They're, they're not that we our communities don't know what works at a local or a national or at a, a level. Then they know what we lack is the political will, but the political will to also then unlock the resources. How do you to enable those local, more regional, resilient economies to be built that are sustainable, that are more equitable, that address all of the inequalities that. Uh, exist and for us to think about adaptation in a very very different way um which you know at least from my perspective i've always tried to understand adaptation is more if you start from the point of everybody has a right to live with dignity then we're adapting the world to 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 deliver that that means you know social protection is an adaption is an adaptive measure living wage is an adaptive measure the right to housing is an adaptive measure and no longer are we thinking about adaptation as being again and, and not making the same mistakes that happened on mitigation where it's framed in very very such technical terms that people think some adaptation policies don't bear a resemblance to their lives and their existence on a day-to-day so we have to talk about adaptation and i know you you do this of of how it it speaks to the people's everyday living right that's and 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 that's the adaptation policies that automatically have social license and you can build support for it because people see them and can feel them and and recognize what they are and 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 see the benefits of 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 doing that um so yeah i mean it's uh this is a fight you know it's a fight to the death right ultimately and uh, it's not one where 
going to step away from uh but it needs to constantly you know be be able to respond to the realities of our communities and so you know the hesitation that there might have existed about let's not talk too much about adaptation we have to think about because it's somehow that undermines the call for one point we have to say that's, that's just that's that that's that's a false choice that only people in the global north can make in the global yeah. side you can't make this choice you have to talk about mitigation adaptation together yeah exactly they're both climate responses aren't they and it's they're both climate actions two sides of the same coin and all of all of that um bro i i would just like to see if we can finish with um i don't know if I'll put you on the spot a bit to try and to try and think of one but i'd, I'd love to hear um, any stories from your travels of, um, of, of, I guess, hope in this area of, of communities that are kind of on this transitional journey and transformational journey and kind of how they live, how they're, you know, are they mitigating and adapting to climate change and within a broader context of creating change in their communities? I, w- I just wondered if you had a, had a story you could leave us with of, of um, you know, to give us hope, because I think the more that we can see communities... Um, examples of communities who are kind of doing the transformation in spite of it all, then they're the ones which will inspire the next community next door and the next country as well. So just, yeah, do you have any? Um, yeah, look, you know, I, I, I mean, the story of, of, of the world is a story of hope, right? I mean, in every corner of the world, there is one truth, which is that people resist and, they create alternatives and no matter what the conditions are, they in those spaces, people are building their vision of what a better world looks like. Look, there is there's a project on, you know, agroecology in Gaza, right? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> a place which is the largest open air prison in the world where land is at a premium, where you're faced with violence and conflict and in there, people are, are talking about how do we build the right to food? How do we talk? How what are the what are the what are the agricultural practices that you know can reconnect us to understanding land, but also food and our relationship to it and build self sufficiency. You look at you know, I mean, look at the Indian farmers marching in in across in millions and millions that's to me is the fight about the right to food right who controls our food system is it going to be corporations or is it going to be uh, uh local communities and farmers and you look at the 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 people's alternatives saying actually we're rejecting the agro-industrial model we are, we we can we look back at in our own histories and we can we know we have the knowledge of what a good food system is that is healthy, that provides for us and our community, that feeds our communities. And why are we producing things that are for export to the global north whilst our people don't have enough to eat? I think in every corner, I, I mean, I'm, I, 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 you know, hope is in abundance everywhere. <laughs> hope is in abundance. Yeah. It's not a lack of hope and it's not a lack of alternatives. And, you know, whether I'm, I mean, you know, I look in, uh, I, I was in 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 El Salvador, and you know, there's an incredible projects run by you know groups there of 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 communities being sharing and pooling knowledge about agroecology and and best practice and and disseminating that within communities about how do we you know we how do we avoid being locked into you know industrial uh, uh, pesticides and fertilizers. You know, I look at we have it was war on one. We have a partner in Kenya, in Sri Lanka, doing exactly the same thing, saying, how can we create organic fertilizers which are of t- an alternative to industrial fertilizers? And people are doing it and saying, yeah, we used to do this before. These are the approaches we have. They they have been erased. I mean, it, w- I'd say the greatest victory of neoliberalism has been the eradication of our imagination that there was anything that was before or anything that could come after. And when we think about the world and say, this is not natural, it was created. And if it was created, it could be dismantled and something else can be put in its place. And then look back in our histories and say, actually, 
There are moments in our history where absolutely there were people, this idea of living in balance with the planet and our environment. Maybe people didn't articulate it in the words that now we use about well-being or circular economies or, or go, but people would understood it because that was the concept of of how people lived and it was culturally and politically embedded in community. It's been systematically attacked and 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 and, and attempted to be erased, but you can't erase because erasing that erases, you know, the very history of humanity and it's and and so I I'm I you know. There, in every pocket, in every corner of the world, there are people building alternatives. Our challenge, the big challenge is, is to weave all those possibilities together to show, you know, that 20 years ago, whatever, 30 years ago, now 30, when we were in, in Seattle, you know, we say one no, many yeses, right? That was the slogan of the anti-globalization movement. And it's exactly the same now in the climate crisis. One no, but many yeses. And the yeses exist. They're existing mm-hmm. within communities and they people are building alternatives, you know? So um, I'm eminently optimistic and hopeful that all of these things exist. That's why I say that that's the great sort of, I suppose, hope in climate. You don't have to create anything. It's there. What it needs is the support to be able to be built out and amplified and supported and prevent it from being crushed, which is our responsibility here in the global north because it's the actions of our governments, our trade policies, our multinationals, which tempt to squash all of these alternatives. So... Yes, people in Nepal or Pakistan can be saying we have a different food system, but yet if our trade uh, policies uh, that we're signing and we're in making Nepal or Pakistan or people sign up to opens up their agricultural system, drives industrial agribusiness into it, uh, uh, takes people off their land, promotes GM or promotes uh, GM patents and all of those things. It snuffs out all of these alternatives. So this is where I, I you know, Ultimately, hopefully, one of the things your book will speak to and speaks to is about in adaptation. It's an adaptation not happening in the global south. Adaptation requires us in the global north to fight for adaptation, to fight for the right of people to be able to adapt to the climate crisis. So, so we are as much part of the movement around adaptation, even though, you know, it's not the number one maybe issue you know, how do we adapt to the climate impacts in the UK? But we have a very, very critical role to play in that. So that was Asad Rahman. Um, it was an emotional roller coaster um, having that conversation. I want to thank him so much for taking the time to talk to me. And um, it was emotional as well, listening back to it. It was um, just heartbreaking, really, to listen to his story about the racist way that that government minister had spoken about him and the way that his colleagues in the environmental movement were trying to apologize for him it just well i mean as you heard it left me speechless i think my jaw dropped as he was as he was telling me um maybe i'm a bit naive but that is where the climate movement was back then and we're definitely not out of the woods the victims are still being blamed and by some very very high profile figures the fight for climate justice is still a very, very real one. It's a struggle. It's the struggle of our times. But as Assad said, there's more and more people from within and beyond the climate movement who are joining the climate justice movement. It's almost unrecognisable compared to the size it was even five years ago. So there's great hope in that. Now, Assad is a realist. He, he knows where things could head if radical action isn't taken in the next few years. I think we all do. Um... But he doesn't wallow in that. He doesn't wallow in the enormity of that realisation. He doesn't let anyone who interacts with him to wallow in it either. The stories of adaptation he shared at the end and his, his assistance and his reminder that we're surrounded by alternatives, by hope, those are the stories that are so inspiring. So, yes, we need to scrutinise and call out the wrongdoers and the maladapters, but we also need to shine a light on the hopeful stories. The agroecology projects he talked about in Gaza and in El Salvador and the projects in Kenya and the farmers striking in India. There's so much stuff happening out there. And I loved it when he said, the story of the world is a story of hope. In every corner of the world, people resist and they create alternatives. 
people are building their vision of what a better world looks like. And that's it, isn't it? We need those visions of different and better kinds of future if we're going to go through that transformative adaptation process that we so clearly need to go through. If you don't already follow Assad on Twitter, do. His his handle is at chilledassad100. His tweets are a bit like that interview. There's a bit of anger, a bit of frustration, but there's so much hope and inspiration in there too and loads of valuable information. So I really encourage you to follow Assad on Twitter. Um, you can get more information about his organisation, War on Want, at waronwant.org. And if you ever get the chance to hear Assad speak in person, take it. He's always worth listening to. The guy is um, mobilising so many people to get involved in the climate movement and the climate justice movement especially. I'll put some links in the um, podcast description um, to Assad's Twitter handle and to War on Want. Um, and I'll also put in um, a link to the speech which I mentioned in the introduction when Assad spoke in the Blue Zone at COP26 when he ripped up his initial script and really spoke from the heart. So I'll put a link to that um, in the description too. So that's it for episode one of the Great Adaptations podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, the next episode is um, with Leanne Wood, the former leader of Plaid Cymru. Um, and it's great to get a politician's perspective on adaptation. So that episode will be out soon. Um, please share this episode um, with your friends, um, social media, WhatsApp, wherever you share things. Please please do that and please subscribe. Please rate, do all those things that podcasters, podcasters always ask you to do. And if you'd like to get in touch, um, please do. You can get in touch via our website, which is theglaciertrust.org. Um, so please go on there. There's a contact us section there. You can fill out a form to send us an email. Um, but you can also get in touch directly with me via Twitter. I'm on at Morgan H. Phillips with a double L in the Phillips. And um, you can also um, follow um, the Glacier Trust on Twitter and on Instagram. We are at the Glacier Trust or one word um, on both those platforms. So, um, yeah, please do um, tag us in if you're if you're posting about this podcast. Um, we'd love to know um, what you think of it. And um, yeah, and do, and do do be in touch. So thank yous. Thank you, first of all, to Assad for agreeing to be interviewed and for being the first guest on our podcast. Thank you to Arkbound and to Ellie Donovan for all your support in getting the Great Adaptations book published and promoted. Thank you to the volunteers, the trustees and the partners of the Glacier Trust, not only for your support um, with Great Adaptations, but for all the work that you do to enable climate change adaptation to happen in Nepal. Thank you to everyone who backed the Great Adaptations crowdfunder, which has made this podcast possible and has made the book possible. Thank you to Amity for allowing us to use their track Waking Up um, on this podcast. Thank you to Hannah Ahmed and to Susie Harrison for the incredible artwork which goes with the podcast, but is also featured throughout the book. And finally, thank you to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time on the Great Adaptations podcast.